Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of Most Notorious, the 1908 murder that inspired the television show Twin Peaks. You don't need to know anything about Twin Peaks. I think, you know, it shares that that starting point, and that's what uh, Mark Frost uh, took from it. He didn't really know uh, the particulars of the case at all. He just kind of saw the inherent drama there of this uh, beautiful young girl, 19, 20 years old, found dead floating in a pond. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy New Year. It's with great pleasure that I introduce my guests, David Bushman and Mark T. Givens. David is an author, publisher, and media professor who is a longtime television curator at the Paley Center for Media. He spent two years as program director at TV Land, and he is co-president, publisher, and managing editor at the Fayetteville Mafia Press. Mark is a consultant for the federal government and creator and host of the Twin Peaks podcast called Deer Meadow Radio. They are here to talk about their new book called Murder at Teal's Pond, Hazel Drew and the Mystery that Inspired Twin Peaks. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming on. Our pleasure, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Yes, as David said, indeed, our pleasure. Thank you. So I watched Twin Peaks back in the day, and saw the most recent season as well, and enjoyed it. But I had no idea that one of the central plot points of the show, the murder of Laura Palmer, was actually based on a murder in 1908. How did you find out about this, and how did the two of you decide to write a book together about it? Um, well, I guess I'll take that. Um, so, so it was um, partially inspired by the murder of Hazel Drew. There's two creators of Twin Peaks, one being Mark Frost and one being David Lynch. And David Lynch has his own inspirations for Laura Palmer. And, you know, if you look, go back and look at his oeuvre of work, you'll see that he has a very clear obsession or fascination with troubled young women, especially troubled young blonde women. 
in fact, the, the first time he and Mark Frost were going to work together was going to be an adaptation of a biography about Marilyn Monroe, but that's a long story of what happened there, but the project got nicked. So it's, we're really talking about Mark Frost when we talk about inspiration, the inspiration for Twin Peaks of the Hazel Drew murder. And Mark Frost had mentioned at a um, Twin Peaks retrospective a few years back at USC in California this, and he might have even mentioned it earlier than that. It's something I think, in fact, I think he did. I think it's something that's kind of been floating around among Twin Peaks uh, fans for years, but I don't think anybody ever looked very deeply into it before. But Mark and I individually were really attracted to this story and, and individually got the idea to explore it deeper. I had just written a book called Twin Peaks FAQ and didn't really get to have the time or space in the book to devote, uh, to really delve into that, um, to this murder. And Mark had a podcast, as you mentioned, Eric, Dear, Dear, Metal, Dear Metal Radio, and I had been listening to that podcast, and he was clearly very into the Hazel Drew story. So I reached out to him, and I had never met him, never talked to him before, but I reached out to him because he was doing such a great job with it on the um, podcast and discovering new information. And I, I said, you know, would you be interested in writing, collaborating on a book? And thankfully he said, yes. That's great. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's about right. I think the one uh, key thing uh, to emphasize maybe there was like you said, you know, Twin Peaks had, had been around uh, 25 or 30 years ago, whatever it is now, it was a big sensation and like anything like Star Wars and uh, Star Trek, you know, there's there's fans that that kind of explore every little uh, area of it. Um, but like you said, you had never heard of this as an inspiration. You may have heard of, you know, other other things that inspired the series. And we were the same way. David and I both um, him looking at his for his book and me for the podcast were digging, you know, more closely. And I think as opposed to 25 years ago, we had the internet now, and, and there were two or three uh, references from Mark Frost about this. And he he always either said he didn't know the name or he said um, Hazel Gray, which was not the name because um, he had heard it more of a, a ghost story from his grandmother, not like it was an actual murder case where he went and read the um, you know court files or the newspaper articles or anything like that. It was more like a, a folk story. It had, it had kind of become a, a urban or a rural legend, I guess, in this case. Um, so yeah, David and I independently um, in our own little projects there uh, focus in on this and rather than just letting it go, um, really dove into it and tried to find if this was an actual thing or if this was a ghost story. I remember initially looking around on the internet upstate New York ghost stories, you know, there's, and there's tons of websites on that, but couldn't find anything that really fit the facts as we know them until I remember at one point taking out the name gray kind of from the search engine, the, um, you know, on Google, the variations I was using just Hazel dead girl early, you know, uh, 20th century upstate New York. And when I took out the name gray, that's when Hazel drew popped up and, and there was a lot of, uh, a ton of coverage actually at the time. And now because we have the internet and it's so easy in many cases, you don't have to even, you know, leave your home and go to the library. There was weeks of uh, extensive newspaper coverage of this case. It was kind of like the, you know, the big, 
OJ case or whatever of the, of the day, the crime of the century, at least for two or three weeks uh, in 1908. So that's that's what got us started or got me interested in it. And as David said, he was independently looking at this and uh, that got the ball rolling. Um, immediately kind of saw beyond the Twin Peaks comparisons, um, you immediately kind of saw the value or the um, the, the drama of, of the narrative. There's lots of twists and turns. You get one newspaper article a week into the investigation saying they found the murderer. <laughs> and then it's like, well, what happened here? All kinds of red herrings. So yeah, almost immediately, even though I did this for a podcast, saw like, oh, wow, this is a really um, good story in its own right. So that when David reached out and uh, mentioned the book, that, that got the ball rolling there. Right, right. Yeah, so for listeners who are not familiar with Twin Peaks, is there anything that would be important for them to understand about the show before delving into the real-life murder of Hazel Drew? I'll take that one first. Um, I, From my perspective, I would say no. If you are a, a fan of Twin Peaks, you'll definitely you know, see the where the source material where it kind of converges and, and hopefully you'll enjoy this this different kind of mystery, uh, this different story. But if you enjoy true crime, uh, history, you know, good murder mystery, you don't need to know anything about Twin Peaks. I think, you know, it shares that that starting point and that's what uh, Mark Frost uh, took from it. He didn't really know uh, the particulars of the case at all. He just kind of saw the inherent drama there of this uh, beautiful young girl, 19, 20 years old, found dead, floating in a pond, small town, rural setting, you know, all these connections this girl had um, because it's the, the small town setting, you know, everyone kind of knew her. And that's what he took for Twin Peaks. And that that also applies to this story, but the story really goes off in, you know, its own directions. There's there's parallels to be made because I think it's just kind of inherent in this in this uh, set of circumstances, the small town characters, you know, how grief impacts them, um, eccentric characters and so forth. You can make connections, but they're really independent um, and you don't need to know or like uh, Twin Peaks to, to get into this story. And there's there's not really anything um, to get back to the whole Mark Frost and versus David Lynch. Uh, there's nothing really uh, David Lynchian in in this story. I guess it's more of a straightforward mystery. There's no uh, dancing little men in, in red uh, suits or uh, or red waiting rooms or anything like that. So um, I don't know if David has uh, any input, but to me, if you read the book, the the intro kind of gets into Twin Peaks because that was our, you know, entryway into this. Um, and of course, Mark Frost, we're very lucky to have him write the uh, the forward to this. But beyond that, um, I don't think Twin Peaks is referenced at all in the, the sort of main body of the book. Yeah, you know, the story is told contemporaneously. So we're we're immersed in 1908 as we're telling it. And so there's absolutely no reference to Twin Peaks following as, after the introduction. And, and again, like Mark said, if you're interested in history and political history and um, economic history and urban history and true crime, mostly, and, you know, trying to solve mysteries, then I think that you'll find plenty to uh, be absorbed in, in this book, regardless of, of whether you know Twin Peaks or not. 
So it was July 11th, 1908, uh, correct, when Hazel Drew's body was found. Could you share with us the circumstances of that discovery? Who found her? Where was she? And what was the condition of her body? Yeah, um, she was... uh her body was discovered by some campers, some uh, young men who were uh, camping for the weekends in the woods in a hamlet called Taberton uh, of San, uh, in a town called Sand Lake, New York, which is uh, near Troy, New York, which is where Hazel was working and living at the time, uh, and which was a very vibrant city uh, at the time. It's really kind of seen better days now, but not far from Albany, the state capital. So these guys were camping and they kind of split up to go in different directions uh, to run errands. And one of them came across the body and he sort of called out to the other one to uh, come take a look. They weren't sure what it was at first. They thought it might be like a white sack or some trash or whatever. And they eventually called in uh the help of an older man whom they knew in the, from the area. And he came down and kind of advised them what to do. And they pulled it into shore and discovered that it was the body of, uh, they, it was completely unrecognizable at the time. It had been in the water at least what we're saying from Tuesday to Sunday. So, you know, several days it was completely bloated, um, I think the eyes were were hanging loose, and um, there's no way to identify to identify the body b- by the looks of it. And um, but what they did was they they called in the um, a doctor and 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 law enforcement people, and eventually they got they brought the body down into town for it to be autopsied. And a couple of days later, it was identified as Hazel's. But the Taberton Woods is a really interesting place because. It's very parochial, for one thing. There are people who, they call it, uh, you know, Mark Frost, all the time we talked to him, he always referred to it as up on the mountain. Mark didn't grow up there, but he had a, his grandmother lived there, and, and he and his brother Scott, who also wrote for Twin Peaks, would visit Taberton every summer to visit their grandmother. And their grandmother, like Mark said, Mark Given said, they, they, um, her, she used to tell them a story about a ghost in the woods of a murdered young woman who's whose murder had never been identified. And so she was kind of haunting the woods. And, um, but Mark Frost said she really, that really was intended as a cautionary tale to sort of scare them into not staying out too late. But the woods are an interesting place. I mean, they're very remote, very, um, you know, kind of eerie in a way at night. Um, she was walking in an area that was known to be dangerous for young women. There had been an attack there recently. Another woman had been attacked there recently. The people who lived up on the mountain were like lumberjacks and, you know, they'd go down into town to drink and then they'd come back up this road to go back home late at night. In fact, there's one guy who plays kind of like a Rosencrantz and Gildernstern uh, role in this story because he just kind of found himself through circumstances involved in this huge story through circumstances that were sort of beyond his control. But, you know, he used to come down uh, the mountain from his home up on the mountain uh, in Taberton and drink and get so drunk that the people in the bar would just put him in his wagon. They were using horse, horse and buggies back then. 
they just carry him kind of comatose out to his wagon, put him in the back and kind of like tap on the horse. And the horse had made the trip so many times that it just knew the way uh, back to his house. But um, so it was a dangerous area. There were a lot of people who had been drinking, uh, wandering around at night there. And uh, and also, you know, there were other weird things. Like it was a in the caves in Taberton, in Taberton Woods, there was... Um, there were meetings of something called the APA, which was the American Protective Association, which was kind of a virulent anti-Catholic um, group that actually plays a role, a significant role in, in Troy politics. So they would meet in the caves in, uh, in Taberton. Young teenagers would have trysts there. Um, you know, it's a very, and you know, Mark Givens and I spent a lot of time up in those woods as we were researching this. And it's not the kind of place even now where I would necessarily want to find myself, you know, <laughs> late at night. Um, it's pretty remote, pretty isolated. Uh, you can go a long time without coming across anybody. And so kind of spooky, not unlike the Twin Peaks woods, but, um, but again, you know, we don't draw any analogies there because, like I said, we, we tell the story in its time. And um, just to jump in, I think to get back to your question and, and where David left off. Um, so Hazel is that's where her body is found, you know, out in, in these uh, middle of these woods in this kind of dangerous area. And as investing, you know, they identify the body. They find out who she is. She's this. uh young domestic servant. She lives in uh, Troy, New York with her, or I'm sorry, her family also lives in Troy, New York. They're the ones who identify uh, the body. So the initial uh, mystery is, you know, obviously who killed her and why, but to get to there, they have, why is she even out here in these uh, Taberton mountain out in these uh, dangerous woods? I think it's 15, 20 miles outside of the city. Um, So what is she doing out there? She's all dressed up. And then it it kind it kind of comes to conspire or to transpire. Um, David mentioned one of the the two guys that happened to see her. They're they're kind of the first or the last people to see her alive and the the first witnesses to come forth. Um, so because they don't have any idea why she's out out in these woods, her family and friends aren't providing any kind of uh, clues. The spotlight goes on these guys right away, um, and then it also during these early days of the investigation, um, not to get too far down, I, I'll, I'll kind of trail off here, but it also trans, it also um, happens her uncle, um, her um, mother's brother lives very close to the scene of the crime. I think it's uh, less than a mile, about three quarters of a mile. He has a farm out there and he's kind of this creepy old um, eccentric guy. Again, you could make Twin Peaks comparisons, which we don't, but um, you can see where uh, the imagination can take you there. Um, so that's kind of, uh, I guess the, the setup for the, um, you know, the, the discovery of the body, the initial kind of like, let's look around. <clears throat> and then from there, it, it, if you've read the book, it, it gets all crazy and, and kind of explodes into all different kinds of theories and suspects as the investigation goes over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Here's the thing, Eric, about, uh, Mark, Mark said people, people were wondering what she was doing there. It was like, um, it was, um, on Monday, on, on Monday, she comes back from a weekend in Schenectady with relatives and she, uh, Monday morning, 
unexpectedly quits her job on the spot, walks out on her job, which everybody claimed they didn't even know she had done that. And her employer said that she uh, was totally surprised by that. So one of the mysteries that police are trying to solve is where, where, where did she go after that? She told her aunt she was going to Watervilliet, which I always mispronounce, but um, across the Hudson River. From all they could tell, she never got there. And there were some sightings of her on Monday afternoon that were reliable, but, but Monday night is a mystery was a mystery they were looking into. Tuesday, most of Tuesday, until she was seen on that road at like 7.30 at night, is a mystery. Where she was, um, why she quit her job, where was she Monday night, where was she Tuesday night, why did she, why, why did she say she was going to Waterville when she didn't go there? Uh, and, and also, um, um, she was missing for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and nobody reported her missing. And there were people who you would have thought would have. So, you know, what she was doing there, how did, how did she get there? What was she doing there? Why was, as Mark Given said, why was she dressed in sort of fancy clothes and Cuban heels? There's all these questions that came up. Uh, so the, the trail to who killed Hazel Drew sort of led back to all these other mysteries that we were trying to solve. Right. There were multiple doctors who examined her body. And as you've said, she had been in the river for a number of days and her body was in pretty rough shape. Did they come up with similar conclusions about the nature of her injuries? Yeah, there was basic consensus on how she was killed. There was found a, a lesion on the back of her head. Was that it, David? Basically, blunt force trauma um, was the cause of death. Yes. Um, she was found, you know, she had been submerged in the water, as, as we described, her body bloated and all that. Um, but they were able to, and there was again, consensus, like you said, there were, um, I think four doctors in total who participated in the autopsy, but they could tell she had not drowned because there were, there was no water found in the lungs. So she was killed, um, before she was thrown into, um, the pond and there was consensus on that. I, I, I don't think anyone disagreed with that unless there was some in the, in the tabloid coverage, but none of the uh, doctors on record. Um, the one area they, or one of the, maybe there was a couple um, more minor areas they disagreed upon, but Dr. Boyce, who was one of the uh, local doctors, kind of the country doctor, um, I think in the seventies, there were, I think two doctors from, you know, kind of from the Sand Lake from the country and, and two, I think aiding the, the county, the investigators. So they would have come from the city in Troy. Um, but Dr. Boyce opined that there may have been uh, a contributing factor of strangula strangulation because there was a ribbon that had been found embedded in Hazel's neck um, because just from uh, the atrophy after being in uh, the water and the, uh, the warm temperature had this effect on the body. So he thought, even though he, he concurred that the blow to the back of the head was the cause of death, 
that the murderer at the time may have been strangling, uh, strangling Hazel as well. The other doctors did not agree. And um, the opinion was that was part of the ribbon that was found kind of embedded in her neck had just been part of her dress. It was part of the, um, it would have been there anyway. And because of how the body decayed, it just kind of went in there. Um, that, that uh, the, uh, the tabloids, namely in the form of William Clemens, who was kind of the, the main uh, tabloid muckraker, if you will, at the time, um, kind of ran with that, you know, that strangulation was a, was a cause of death. Um, but I don't think Boyce recanted, but he was, um, you know, I don't think he meant to be quite in the spotlight and Clemens kind of ran with that. And the other area, again, I think, and um, there's a lot of details in this book. And if you go back and read the newspaper articles at the time, you know, if you read one article and then read a different one, they all have different facts even. So we had to kind of contend with that. Um, but there was some, I think, some dispute about whether, and it was more like if they knew for sure if Hazel basically had had sex or not or had been outraged um, sort of as the language of the time. But to answer your question, the actual cause of death, I think was pretty clear other than that uh, Dr. Boyce also posited, you know, she was possibly strangled as well. We'll be back after some brief messages. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? 
But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. And so Hazel Drew, as, as you said, she would eventually be identified by her family, her father and mother, I believe, who, who didn't seem to know a lot about her life in the days and even months prior to her murder. I know you mentioned Hazel worked as a domestic servant, but, but could you tell us more about her, her background, what her personality was like? Well, um, Hazel grew up in, um, uh, was born and raised in the country uh, outside of Troy and um, on a farm. And um, when she was 14 years old, she left home and got a job uh, working for one of the more powerful people in Troy as a, a domestic servant. I, I don't think, you know, I think that's a, one of the mysteries of, of Hazel Drew, too, is that she wound up came from a very modest background. I wound up working in the household. She had three employers, and each one of them was an extremely influential and powerful man. Um, two of them were public servants, and one of them was a very rich coal merchant who um, ran for mayor of Troy and got defeated. But the other two were both, all three of them were very active in politics. And she had no known connection to these people that we know of. Uh, but somehow she landed in these houses of these powerful people. So she she moved away from home, which was fourteen, and started you know her 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 life apart from her family. And um, that much we know, you know, she had mysteriously quit her last job. Another mystery involving her was that when she was working for her second employer, which was the winter before her death, she left that job and went to. Uh, for two or three weeks or four weeks to uh, her uncle's house. Mark had mentioned that her uncle lived near the pond. Her her uncle, who she had no particular relationship with, he was a strange guy who didn't really get along with anybody, but her sister-in-law and brother lived there, and she supposedly was close to her sister-in-law. So she went there in the dead of winter with what was called a mysterious uh, illness. And nobody, uh, everybody said they didn't know what it was, but they never called the doctor. Uh, she never told anybody uh, what it was. She was bedridden. Um, and this led to a lot of speculation in the tabloid press that she had been pregnant and either miscarried or aborted the child or or something of that nature or had the child and something happened to it. But um, So that was one mystery about her. But the other thing about Hazel is that she's described differently by different people. She Some people said she, uh, you know, like her last employer um, – Mrs. Mary Carey said that she was a very quiet homebody who was a churchgoer and and um, liked to curl. Her favorite thing to do would be to curl up with a book by the fireplace at night and, and didn't have any gentleman callers. And uh, her best friend, Carrie Weaver, said that she had no boyfriend. And if she did, um, Carrie would have known about it because they were so close. And then there was Minnie, who, Minnie Taylor, her aunt, and one of possibly her best friend, um, who uh, wouldn't, in the beginning of the investigation anyway, say anything about 
about Hazel, uh, just refused to cooperate at all. There were rumors that she and that Minnie and Hazel had gone riding with um, with some men, unidentified men, just a couple of days before her death. And police were trying to get the identity of the men, and 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 Minnie wouldn't give them up. And then Minnie wouldn't give up the names of any of her friends, of uh, Hazel's friends, because she said she didn't want to get any good girls in trouble and. You know, it was never clear why they would be in trouble if she gave up their names. So th- there seemed to be this other life to her that maybe Minnie knew about, but other people didn't. Um, they found um, in her trunk after her death, um, she had this habit of writing letters in in pencil and then um, keeping the drafts and sending uh, other co- second copies of them. So they found a lot of her correspondence going out and also correspondence coming in, much of which was signed by initial only, but clearly from men who uh, were attracted to her and um, hoped to have romantic relations with her. And, um, you know, at least at least one of those letters, if not more, the writer is clearly obsessed with her and talks about how dynamic and beautiful and charismatic she is and how she was so much more appealing than her the, the, her friends who who uh, he met, and so there's this real dichotomy in what what I believe to be a secret life that or a life that she kept from many people, um, and also this real sort of aura about her that she was like this incredibly um, appealing or charismatic or beautiful woman who. Uh, kind of, you know, I forget what the French call it, uh, a more, uh, it's mad love. I forget the, uh, it's a big thing in film noir. I forget what it's called. There's a French word for it. But uh, that she kind of inspired that in men. So that was, you know, like another one of these intriguing things about our investigation is who was, who was Hazel Drew really, you know? Yeah, I think uh, David covered it pretty well, and that was kind of the the central thing. If you go back to the, the crime scene and, and what the investigators were dealing with, they couldn't really come up with a good motive. You know, they kept throwing things against the wall, different theories, and nothing would stick. Everybody had an alibi or, or whatever. So that kind of did become the central question because uh, her best friend, Aunt Minnie, wasn't, you know, for whatever reason, wasn't... Uh, was holding back a lot of uh, things. And as the investigation dragged on, uh, the picture of her changed. Initially, she was seen as this uh, virtuous, everyone had good things to say about her. And then as the investigation wore on, I don't know if um, it was more the truth came out or more the tabloid uh, press kind of showed up. And uh, really all her family and friends, they did, like uh, David was discussing, Aunt Minnie was holding back, but her family and friends fairly consistent picture of, uh, you know, not really saying anything bad about her. The press kind of had a tendency, this is the age of yellow journalism, uh, to take things out of context for her her instance, her friend Carrie Weaver, um, you know, had, if you read her full interview, it has glowing things about her. But at the end, it's like, well, I don't know how you know, she managed to, to pay for the, the fine clothes she had. And of course, that was the headline, you know, it was nothing about she would never, you know, she didn't talk to boys or stayed at home and all that. Um, and they did that several times. Um, and that being said, I don't know, maybe David and I don't completely agree. We had to kind of, you know, 
come to a consensus here on, uh, I know we had a lot of conversations about that, this idea of a secret life. Um, and, you know, my kind of take on that is, you know, we all kind of have our secret side, our, it doesn't even have to be dark necessarily, but, you know, your relationships, your personal relationships, um, that, you know, that not everyone sees. And I think that's kind of what Hazel got caught in. And, and, and she was one thing we do know about her. She was very much a social creature starting with getting a job at and moving out at age 14, but she did like to um, get out of town and, and made visits with her friends up to New York and just seemed to know a lot of people um, in Troy, uh, in, in the country. She would, she did move back and forth a few times in her life and uh, wherever she uh, moved on from, she re- retained relationships, which was like a big part of the mystery because any one of these relationships could have been kind of the key. Uh, to solving things. Um, so yeah, uh, who was Hazel Drew? Uh, it definitely was was at the heart of this. And uh, in, in retrospect, looking back at on this, I think we, we may have done a better job of, you know, getting the mechanics of uh, when she was killed and, and who killed her. But the reasons behind it, which are more tied into this, in, in my mind, a more complex of who this person was. I mean, all people are, are complicated and to kind of be able to break down a person to, to get to the motivation of what killed them for anybody would be tough, but Hazel in particular, because she was this dynamic uh, sort of social creature um, who lived a very full life in her uh, short uh, 20 years. Right. So as you point out in your book, Hazel Drew was quite poor and she worked as domestic help, but she also had the luxury at one point of, of quitting her job on the spot. And she traveled a lot in her last few weeks on Earth. And as you said, she bought really expensive clothing. She liked to wear the, the latest fashions. I mean, it's a little bit odd, right? The, the disparity between her income and her spending habits. Yeah. Um, and over the course of our invest, so if you read the newspaper articles, they, they do raise those, um, items, um, and you, you have to consider them. And, um, I think over the, over this, over the period that we were looking at this, though, we, we kind of went back and forth on that. Um, you know, talking to historians up at the, up at the day, you know, they, they question her making these trips and it really just started, um, the, the last year of her life when she was, uh, visiting New York City and Boston uh, two or three times, I think she did. But you know, if you if you really look at her circumstances, she wasn't making a lot of money, but she was uh, she didn't have to pay for her room and board or food or anything. I I, I don't know. I I think there's definitely a gray area there where, especially since we the the motive behind the the killing could be tied to that, um, and we don't know the particulars. But again, I. You can also look at it and, and sort of explain things, you know, if you look behind uh, the headlines, um, if that was and, 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 and David and I may not have agreed on, on every one of these issues. We kind of had to come to a consensus and I'll let him <laughs> jump yeah. in on that. Yeah, I don't want to leave the impression that we're inventing this because Carrie Weaver is quoted extensively as saying that she has no idea where um, that. That Hazel, who and Carrie was making, you know, had the same kind of job, same uh, area in Troy. So they were making um, 
comparative salaries, which I think was like $4.50 a week, Carrie herself says that she has no idea how Hazel was able to travel as much as she did and wear the clothes that she wore. So it's not something that we, we in any way invented. It, it was out there. And, you know, again, like the things about, you know, why was Minnie not releasing the name of, of the men they went riding with? Why was Minnie not telling the names of their friends? Why did uh, so many people think that Hazel had no male admirers or no social life when she clearly did? Um, not only just a social life, but a very active social life. So, you know, I think, yeah, so Mark and I might not have agreed on that, but I, I feel pretty confident that, that there was, um, you know, the secret side to um, Hazel that there must have been a reason why it was being kept secret. So that was my feeling about it. So much of the mystery, as you've already alluded to, revolves around her last few days alive. She was so close to her uncle's farm. There were initially some that believed she had been headed to her her uncle's. That was the reason she was in that area. But then later on thought that maybe it was more than likely a a coincidence. And she was there for other reasons. Yeah. um, Well, what they ended up doing was they they grilled her uncle uh, multiple, multiple times. They kind of kept going back to him. I would say at least three or four times. And, you know, even up to the point of the inquest, uh, which ended all this unsuccessfully, uh, two and a half weeks sort of later, um, I think they, him and Frank Smith, they, they brought him back in again. Um, but basically he stuck to his story the whole time um, that he was out that evening um, when Frank Smith and Rudy Gundrum that Tuesday evening uh, saw Hazel walking up the road, up Taberton Mountain, uh, dressed dressed up like she was, you know, going out for a date. Um, he said he had no knowledge of Hazel coming for a visit. Um, he hadn't seen her, uh, I forget, you know, since the last uh, winter. He said he had spent the whole night out on his porch smoking by himself. He saw um, the Richmonds, who were his uh, sort of sharecroppers working on his farm. They had at one point gone into town uh, to drop their brother off at the train station. They ran into the, the kid, Frank Smith, as well, who had seen Hazel and, and was very uh, excited about it. But the Richmond said, you know, sort of backing up the uncle's story that they had no they had never met Hazel and they had no knowledge that she was coming uh, to her uncle's house. And they they lived right there on the property. He again, like you said, he he lived right there. There's no reason that we know for Hazel being out there. Um, no confirmed reason. There are other theories. Um, it later came up that her her brother was actually staying out in the country at the time as well. Um, but yeah, basically they had nothing on this guy. The reason he kept coming up, I think, uh, was he was an eccentric character, kind of you know cranky and uh, sharp witted, seemingly indifferent to Hazel's murder at, at different points like when the body uh was down at uh the uh the mortuary there uh he, he he didn't go visit even though everyone in town basically did and there were you know rumors starting that it was his niece or you know he said he had nothing you know uh i think he said he went to he had to go get shave uh shave and a haircut in town or something so his sort of personality and again this is the, the time of yellow journalism he was constantly in the headlines um as a suspect. 
But in the end, you know, the investigators kept trying, you know, they combed his property looking for something and just basically had nothing on him. So, yeah, you know, I think one important thing that Mark left out was he had no alibi. I mean, he was supposedly asleep. Uh, you know, the Richmonds, his farmhands left to go into town and, and that left him alone. And so he was alone and supposedly went to sleep at like nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or whatever. So, so he was, um, you know, he had no alibi. And the other thing that Mark alluded to was people started talking. A Frank Smith's father even came over to Taylor's farm and told him that Frank said it was Hazel. And he still didn't go to check to, to not only did he not go to the mortuary or the pond or anything, he, didn't, he never even told his sister that her daughter had been found dead, which his sister being uh, Hazel's mom. So... To say that his actions were, and that's just the beginning of it. The guy was just an incredibly strange guy, and not, like you know, not not in an endearing way. Nobody really seemed to like him. So he, yeah, he was a prime suspect very early on, and uh, actually up until the end, I would say. So you mentioned Frank Smith. He's kind of a a puppy dog character in this story who seemed to have an obsession with Hazel. They had known each other for quite a while uh, due to the fact that Hazel had lived in the area as a child. So he had greeted her as she walked alone on her last night. He told police that she greeted him back. And he was also there when her body was pulled out of the water. Yet he said nothing to investigators about meeting her uh, despite the fact that she was recognizable uh, by the very distinct clothing she was wearing, he, he should have recognized her. You're right. Yeah, I'll let Mark talk about this because he he was really into Frank Smith. But I will say that he he clearly knew it was Hazel because he told his father that it was. And yet, you're right; he did not say anything anything to investigators at all about it. And they were going around asking everybody at the pond, like, you know, what they knew. So he was definitely withholding information from them, which was just one of the many weird things that Frank Smith uh, did. Yeah. every So, yeah, all those things, yeah, uh, going around, talking to people, uh, not coming forward, all those things are putting a he, – he's putting a, a target on his own back and, and making himself the lead suspect, which he is initially. <laughs> um, as, you, you know, you read it uh, – you read about him, everyone in town kind of had the same thing to say. I, I think our editors were, gave us a little pushback because of the, you know, we, he was called a halfwit or a, a dullard, uh, these kinds of things. But these were like, you know, direct quotes uh, from people at the time. Um, everyone kind of knocked on this guy. Uh, so he probably did, or we don't know, but he may have had, you know, a learning disability, uh, something like that. They said, um, you know, if you if you read the, his interviews, uh, initial interviews, he's very confused and he's contradicting himself back and forth and changing his story as he goes. Uh, so, yeah, he he was maybe his own worst enemy. You know, Rudy Gundrum seemed to get out of it pretty quickly, <laughs> saying he didn't know anything and, you know, went back to his uh, home and his jug of whiskey. Uh, but Frank Smith, kind of like uh, William Taylor, Hazel's uncle, was repeatedly uh, interrogated by the the detectives um, to the point I think they you know finally got their story straight by the time of the the inquest. So it was a little bit of a, a disappoint a disappointment that they couldn't 
break them because uh, I think just the the constant pounding them, they finally did get their stories straight. Um, but he had, um, you know, I don't want to give too much away, I guess, uh, but uh, seemingly had pretty good alibi uh, as well, despite a, a lot of uh, marks against him that that did make him a very uh, appetizing or a, a great suspect early on. He was he was probably the number one suspect in the early days of the investigation. So much was made of a mysterious wagon that was seen by a Mr. and Mrs. Huffy. What was the significance of this wagon? So that was late in the late, relatively late in the investigation. And again, if you read the book, there's just kind of these twists and turns where Almost every day, there's a headline. Sometimes in different papers, there's different headlines about you know this is the big clue or you know evidence uncovered that's going to uh, solve the case. And this was another one of those that kind of emerged briefly for a day or two, um, and then and then sort of faded. Um, it did come back up at the inquest again. Um, but what happened here was uh, another set of farmers uh, up on Taberton Mountain, supposedly this deserted mountain, but there's all these witnesses that kind of gradually emerge. And I, these are, again, late in the investigation, um, elderly couple. Uh, they said they, you know, they didn't want to get involved was the reason they hadn't come forward. I think there's a direct quote about, some, you know, those guys might come and blow my head off with a shotgun if I had come forward, but eventually they track them down and they did not see Hazel that night, which um, a lot of the other uh, farmers going up and down the mountain had spotted Hazel, but they did see around the same time that Hazel would have been near the pond, uh, two guys off pulled over to the side of the road, as you said, in that sort of a fancy uh, yellow wheels uh, covered wagon. And the one guy was sitting, in the driver's seat holding the the reins of the horse and the Huffy said he kind of looked nervous and, you know, just pulled aside more, didn't say anything when they rolled by. And as they continued to go on, uh, they noticed there was another guy closer to the the water, kind of like wading through the, the marshy area. And he seemed to be searching around in the, in the reeds. Uh, so that's the significance of them. They, they investigators. So again, this was the big headlines and investigators were off to try and find these guys. They went to all the, um, the wagon, you know, tried to go to the livery stations to see if they could track down the wagon who had rented it and taken it out that night. And, uh, ultimately the investigation was, uh, not, not successful in there, um, I don't know, David, if you had something to add on. Uh, so that was at about 8 o'clock, I think, if I remember correctly, which means that uh, 7.30, which was the last time she was seen, confirmed by Frank Smith and Rudy Gundrum. So half an hour later, these people were seen at the pond, but there was no Hazel. So somewhere in that half hour, you know, Hazel disappeared or was murdered or something that um, I guess the relevance is that people were coming up the mountain a short time after Frank and, and Rudy saw her and they, and they didn't see her. So the question is, you know, like what happened to her? I think another couple saw her picking raspberries, mm-hmm. which is uh, around the pond, uh, pond area or I think. And, and none of the people who saw Hazel uh, saw the Huffey's wagon. 
So it's like, and even though the timing, it should, it's all kind of happening at once, which, which leads you to believe that uh, this wagon kind of got in there and got out of there pretty quickly. I think uh, that there was a theory that perhaps they were uh, tourists. It looked like a, like I said, a wagon from the city, not like a local or a farm wagon. It was kind of fancy, a Concord wagon. And that, that Teal's Pond, that area there, at one time it was pretty popular with uh, the tourists who would come out there in the summer from the city and they would get bait um, to go fishing from the pond. But I think, again, a lot of details in this book, but there had been a change, I think, in the, in the law or the legislation for uh, doing that. So they, that was no longer a popular practice, I think, at that time. Um, so it was, it's unclear, you know, they could have been fishermen who didn't know what was going on, just getting bait, but just the timing it, of it and everything, very, very suspicious, I would say, the Huffey's wagon. Yeah, we do try to um, build a time, construct a timeline uh, to the best of our ability. Um, I think we start at about six when Rudy Gundrum heads down the mountain. Uh, he's He's going down into town to pick up some people at the trolley station and we take it as far as i think the sighting of that wagon and we try to account for every or as many minutes as we can during that sort of two-hour window uh, on the night of our murder we'll return after a quick break everybody shush william shatner has something to say cat and jethro box of oddities what do you do when the woman you love dies well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back again. Yeah, it's such a striking image. Hazel casually picking raspberries on this isolated road, dressed to the nines, and not dressed for a, for a hike in the country. And she wasn't carrying her suitcase. 
and again, just so close to her uncle's home. Uh, the, the people that saw her that evening said she stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah, Eric, and that's the other thing too. Is as you mentioned, her suitcase was in Troy at the uh, at Union Station, the train station. So she almost had to be going back to Troy that night. But so not only do we not know how she got, do we know for a fact how she got to uh, Teal's Pond or Taberton or or you know who took her there or how she got there? But we also don't know how she was planning to get back because. She needed whatever was in her suitcase to, uh, and was apparently planning to pick it up that night because she had nothing else with her. You know, at first they thought her suitcase might be at the bottom of the pond, so they drained that, but it wasn't. It was at the back in Troy. So she was going back to Troy. So if she wasn't meeting somebody there, how was she getting back to Troy? That, that's just more, that just makes you think more that she had to be meeting somebody there in order to be getting a ride back. And the fact that she seemed so unconcerned, right? It, it did seem to suggest that she was meeting someone there. She was not distressed. Or she had gone there possibly for a little bit of clarity. Um, something about the area might have brought her some peace, and she was searching for a bit of that peace. Yeah, her her family. Um, you, we mentioned the uncle. Her um, her family, her parents and her brothers and sisters, um, had lived in Troy and went around the time when Hazel, when when she was fourteen, which would have been nineteen oh four, when she started working. Uh, who was it for? For um, not Tupper. Hislop. Hislop. <laughs> yeah, Thomas Hislop, the the city treasurer. Um, her family. Her dad had problems always securing a job during tough times and so forth. So they would move back and forth, which we found was found out was pretty common, uh, moved back uh, and lived at her uncle's uh, house. So Hazel would visit there, though she didn't live there. And uh, so, for example, that's when she encountered Frank Smith, who she was not uh, a close uh, friend with. It was somebody who had, you know, at, uh, they had attended some parties together, um, played card games and listened to records and stuff like that. And, uh, had, Frank had apparently developed a, a crush on Hazel, seeming, seemingly one-way uh, relationship, from what we can tell from that. Um, yeah, but, you know, I, t- I tend to re- reject any um, sort of harmless or benign conclusion because she quit her job. Nobody, she didn't tell, apparently didn't either didn't tell anybody that she was quitting her job or or they lied, and because nobody seemed to know that she quit her job. She, nobody knows where she was Monday and Tuesday night. Nobody knows how she got to um, Teal's Pond or why. And nobody knows how she was planning to get back. So, you know, there's something going on. There has and the, to be something. The, the, the quitting of her job was apparently very out of character. You know, this was, she wasn't like a flighty you know, person. She had been working solid for four years when she changed employers. Previously, from what we understand, it was, you know, from the, uh, at the employer's discretion. So uh, yeah, as David, definitely something going on there that was not normal for her. Yeah. I, I mean, there are just so many suspects. Another relationship of hers, police were trying to sort out was with a train conductor, right? He was with Pullman, Pullman Porter, I think, or 
Magner, John Magner. Yeah, he was, um, you know, he was, I think, a Pullman. I, I, I can't remember now. I think- yeah, he was he was a conductor. And I think the, the story there was um, Hazel had been given his name to go visit in New York City. And uh, when she visited New York with her friend and it was unclear, you know, someone who knew the city who could kind of show her around. And so from there, you know, the, the theories spread out. Well, they had some kind of relationship, either started there or so forth. So because of who Hazel was, you can um, where on the spectrum you kind of land as, you know, the secret life. Is it a dark secret life where she's out? as a, you know, as a prostitute, which that kind of thing was going on at the time, we didn't really find any evidence of that. Um, Or is she just an outgoing uh, woman who, for the time, she's kind of going against norms, you know, Uh, today, I don't think anyone would blink an eye, you know, a young 20 year old woman wanted to go visit, uh, Phil, you know, New York City or or anything like that. But at the time, um, I think she was definitely an outlier. Well, part of them, you know, again, I don't want to give too much away, but part of the mystery about the Magner situation is that he claimed that she never did come to his um, house in New York. And I think it was Minnie or somebody said that, was it Minnie said that um, she uh, went to the house of some train person who she did, Hazel told her she had been in New York to, and visited the house of some man who worked for a train company who uh, told her that he had to work early the next day and couldn't show around town. So there's, there's, you know, it's just another suspect and uh, some more questions that some more conflict and contradictions. And uh, again, it's difficult. And, not to- and all those, all those kinds of uh, possible tawdry relationships, you know, she had these relationships, she knew these people and, you know, uh, visited these people and so forth, had relationships but because uh, this case kind of just grew and grew in popularity and brought in the, the New York City tabloids covering it, they would single in on anything and, and kind of run with it. So looking back at it 100 years ago, you kind of have to dig through your different sources with that understanding that or, or figuring that out as we went, actually. Um, different sources, if you're reading, uh, what was it, the New York... Uh, I can't even, you know, there were two or three from New York and we discussed William Clemens who would definitely focus in on those things. And they, they would provide uh, unique reporting and different details and facts that uh, as far as we could tell were, were true and, and good information, but you always had to consider the bias of uh, the sources. And, you know, they're, they're more trying to sell papers than the Troy papers who seemingly, you know, were at least uh, for the most part, we're trying to get the story right uh, and get, get it on record. So it's very interesting diving through all that. Yeah, we should mention William Clemens, you know, while, while we're talking about him, that he was this, uh, you know, very sort of um, bombastic, full of himself reporter who called himself a criminologist, even though he didn't have any criminology training. He The world's greatest criminologist. Yes. And um, he... Uh, claimed to have solved the Marie Roger case and um, a whole bunch of other famous cases. And he kind of swept into town for what, two weeks, Mark? And, and you know, made all these, started to make all these really um, salacious claims in his column about Hazel and what was going on. And the thing is like, I think it's like, I mentioned this to somebody that like the, in the, in the exorcist, Max Van Saito, 
and Jason Miller, they're about to go in and confront Reagan and the devil. And Max Fansato says to uh, Jason Miller something to the effect of, um, you know, beware the devil. And Jason Miller goes, why? Because he lies. And Max Fansato says, no, because he mixes lies with truth. And that was William Clemens. If he was just everything that he was writing was a lie, you would know that you couldn't believe it. But he, but there were things that he found that nobody else had. So that turned out to be true. So it was, you, you, you know, you never knew what, what to believe or not believe that came out of his typewriter. Right. So another interesting element to this story is this strange camp located a few miles from Teal's Pond. And it was rumored to be the site of crazy turn-of-the-century sex parties. Yeah. I, you, you know, and I, I, I totally believe that because, uh, you know, some of the people who were involved in it, there was this guy, um, Henry Cramrath from Albany, was one of the owners of it, along with his brother. And they had very shady pasts. And there were stories of... Um, Women, uh, people who lived in the neighborhood told the police about uh, the, hearing screams coming from the camp and being visited by women who claimed to be uh, held captive there uh, and not able to leave and being assaulted by drunk men. And, um, and then when the inquest came, they suddenly forgot that they had told those stories. So there was, again, something fishy going on there. But I think there was clearly something strange or, um, again, salacious going on in, at that camp. And there was one report of a woman uh, who had visited somebody living nearby and said she was there with her aunt. It's just, the details of the story sounded, and she was going to New York for Memorial Day, which was what Hazel did. And, and so they were wondering for a while if Hazel had ever been to that camp. That was their interest in the camp from the perspective of uh, of Hazel, whether someone had left the camp and come upon her or whether somebody... Wasn't there also, David, there were screams heard or that was another rumor no, no, that no, yeah. wasn't there was screams heard is right. around that time or yeah. something like that? Yeah, it, it woke it woke up uh, a woman who lived nearby who used to be a caretaker on the, on the property and she uh, woke her husband up and and then they, they didn't hear another scream, but they did hear a car, I think, going down the mountain. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was uh, something that they were looking to see whether or not there was any connection to Hazel. There was also some guy who walked into a bar on uh, Taberton Mountain and said something like, I think if I'm remembering the details correctly, chugged down a drink and then said something like, well, I had to do it. Put the drink down and, and left. <laughs> we were looking for that guy for a while. Um, so, yeah. Aunt Minnie is such a central figure in this story, and she seemed to know more than she ever admitted. Uh, do you believe that she was withholding information that would have helped them solve the case? Or do you think that the police had pulled everything out of her by the end? Yeah, she was definitely withholding information for a long time. And then they, there was some talk about how at the end they... Uh, they sweated. They sweated the 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 last bit of information out of her, and they were content with what they had gotten. But um, they had promised her, as a condition of that, they weren't going to release it to the press. Which, so you know, which makes you wonder why that is, and and especially coming after 
Minnie had said she wasn't going to release the name of Hazel's friends because she didn't want to get good good girls in trouble. So I think it's possible that she. Uh, I think it's I think it's unlikely, first of all, that that Minnie um, told everything, and I also think it's mysterious and unusual and strange that what she did tell all of a sudden they weren't willing to share that information. Whereas they had been sharing information rather liberally all along and suddenly they were no longer willing to do that. So I think that whatever she did tell them in the end was, uh, and David, David, just to, sorry to cut in. Was that not, um, referring to, it might've been, again, there's some, so much coverage of this that, that crossed over, but, wasn't that uh, she had gone riding with her and Hazel with two men uh, at some date, you know, very uh, soon or before the uh, murder? I think that was the, they were trying to get the names of those men. They were that. that but, but, um, yeah. Yes. But uh, whatever, um, definitely that, that that was one of the things they were trying to get from her. What else they got from her that they felt was not something that could be shared. I, I don't know. But I, I think that, you know, the fact that they suddenly uh, stopped sharing information like that has got to mean something, you know, and, and uh, that in all likelihood that they were protecting somebody who had some influence. So I, I do have a final question for you. What was it like working with each other on this, uh, especially in the midst of a pandemic? What were the challenges? And how did you find yourself complementing each other throughout the process? It took us about six years. So we started pre-pandemic and and went into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that's the um, logistics of it. And um, yeah, I think we do uh, complement each other. I think Mark is really, really, really great at and really into... Um, research and very fastidious about it. And I think that um, for whatever reasons about our personalities, we would come to different conclusions about the the same things. And I think we work them out amicably. Um, And, you know, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I have tremendous respect for, you know, Mark's talents and abilities. And, um, you know, uh, and I think, I think we got along you know, not to say that there weren't moments where one of us got frustrated with the other, because of course there were. But I think overall it was a pretty healthy uh, relationship, and I think the fact that we worked on this together made the book so much better. Yeah, I'd say um, David was just awful. I would never ever, you know, work, let alone sp- now. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, David's got his perspective, but I basically agree what he said. Um, yeah, we're, I think we're, we're pretty good friends now. It's been, like I said, six years, you know, at first I, in the pre pandemic times, I guess it was, it was really like a lot of fun before we even had a book deal, just kind of taking these field trips up to to Sand Lake and the, visiting the historical society and the library and getting to know the people up there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, the, the writing process, this is my first book, David's written a couple, that was a little more challenging, I think. And I've come to the conclusion, you know, you sit any two people down and, and yeah, okay, now you have to write this. And it was you know, it, a couple years into uh, the process when we really started uh, getting to the nitty gritty of writing. Uh, so that took some, some back and forth to kind of come up with a, a common style we could use. Um, I think there's, this is a great story that we stumbled upon and there's so many different ways you could tell it. 
So we, we had to just, you know, figure that out at first. When I was by myself just looking at it, kind of unrealistically came upon this, I, I immediately went to the thought of a, a movie or a, a TV show, like, you know, one of the prestigious uh, AMC-type 13-episode uh, season, Pro, you know, and, and we've actually had some uh, discussions about that, but everyone, I think, wanted to see the, the story, see the book first before we um, moved on to that. Um, but I, I'm very happy with what we, uh, we sell on. Um, I think that, you know, it's a, a, a compromise to some degree, but it was, uh, I think the, the end result is stronger, you know, just like anybody, I guess it's, it's finding the right one, but as a partner, there's, we each had our strengths and, you know, David is very good with deadlines. I'm not, not as great. So, you know, that's helpful. And, uh, on the other hand, I can go down the rabbit hole and, and kind of keep, hitting this one guy or just keep researching it, even though there's seemingly nothing there and then come up with a, a cool fact or something. So, yeah. And I, you know, writing a book, like I said, this is my first time. So I think I did learn a lot uh, from David through this process. So uh, we'll see where we go from here, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed this, this project. Eric, we should mention that, you know, this is what we're, we're calling creative nonfiction. And it was a completely different book when we started it, but we were, we, we sort of, we're working with this company called MetaBook at the time, which is now called Synergistic. But, you know, they encouraged us to um, imagine more. So uh, whereas many, many, many of the conversations and everything that, that happens is real, there were times, there are, are a handful of times, I would say, where we uh, imagine things, uh, you know, not things happening, but maybe things that were said. Uh, like we knew that, um, for example, that Jarvis O'Brien uh, withheld information from the conversation with Minnie, but we didn't have the dialogue between him and the press. So there, are, so maybe we might have. I think that was a case where we made up a little bit of the back and forth. So there was a little bit of that, not not a lot of it, but we are calling it creative nonfiction, and hopefully, it reads a little bit more like a like a novel. And we do take a little license, uh, but the facts again are 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 true to history, at least as as they were recorded by the contemporaneous newspapers. Well, excellent. Um, please share with us the details of your, your website, your podcast, and how people can get your book. What do we have? Um, it's available now. I'm not sure. This is probably going out in January, so it, it should be out everywhere now. So go to Amazon or you know whatever website you want to go to. But it should be out everywhere, Kindle, hardback, softback, or paperback, and um, an audio version, I believe. Yes. Um, I don't know if we have websites. David, you, you set up a Facebook group, did you not? Is that still uh, active? We do have a Facebook group, yeah. And not. Uh, yeah, and it's, what is it, Murder at Teal's Pond, I think. Uh, I'll tell you the talking while I do this. Yeah, and um, as as we discussed earlier on, I did uh, do a podcast that was more uh, Twin Peaks, which is where this kind of spun off of for me called Dear Mo Radio. And I had been planning because over the course of these six years, um, we've accumulated uh, a lot of great interviews. And uh, I think I mentioned we did roundtables uh, with locals up in Sand Lake and sort of amateur detectives and uh, historians and so forth. We um, spoke to a lot of descendants of people involved in the case. Uh, Hazel's cousins, who uh, or first cousin who she visited the weekend before her murder. Uh, we got to know their uh, grandchildren, uh, brother and sister, who were also 
uh, involved in investigating this. So yeah, it's a great time. But um, what what I was mentioning, uh, Dear Meta Radio uh, has been dormant for the last year or two as Twin Peaks kind of faded away uh, as well. But we are uh, thinking about putting out some of those interviews on uh, Dear Meta Radio. So uh, just on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, the, the keyword is Dear Meta Radio. And we're hoping to, in the next week or two, um, launch some of those that kind of support the book. And you can kind of join us, I guess, uh, along the way in the investigation. At one point, I think we were considering writing the book like that, you know, kind of we would be uh, part of the story and uncovering things um, and so forth. And that kind of faded away. But uh, this this kind of would support that. You can kind of see us along the way as we figure things out and talk to all the different people uh, who add things, who add a lot um, to the, to the investigation. The um, Facebook page is called Hazel Drew and Twin Peaks, the real story. And I, you know, we welcome anybody at all to um, follow us and comment on it. I mean, if you uh, make a doing the shameless pitching here, but if you uh, read the book and hopefully like it, feel free to re- or please review us on Amazon. That always helps. Um, We've done like New York Comic Con and Awesome Con. We have more events coming up, you know, in the weeks ahead. Uh, and if you are looking for somebody to address your true crime book club or your library or whatever, we we uh, certainly open to doing that as well. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here. Of course. Well, we really, yeah, we really appreciate it too. And, and like I said to you um, earlier, I really uh, do love your podcast. I think it's a great idea for a podcast. And I, and I, you know, this subject matter is just like something that I love listening to. So great work. Oh, thank you so much for the compliment. Again, I have been speaking to David Bushman and Mark T. Givens. Their book is called Murder at Teal's Pond. Hazel Drew and the Mystery that Inspired Twin Peaks. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.